Well, let me open up in a word of prayer as we uh, get started here. Let's pray together, family. Father, I thank you, Lord, for t- this morning and uh, the opportunity we have together every Sunday, week in and week out, to get together with men and women, our brothers and sisters, our youth, our, our children, uh, to be encouraged in our faith and spurred on, but above all, Lord, to, to meet with you collectively. God, you're a God who's ever-present everywhere we go, and, and there's something sweet about uh, connecting with you with our brothers and sisters in this place. And so, Father, I pray that you would continue to work and speak through me and move in each of our hearts. God, uh, we, we pray for your continued work in this neighborhood, in this city of Chicago. Um, God, we pray for the schools. We pray for um, all our kids who are going to be going back to the Chicago Public School this week. God, we pray for Steinmetz and Locke Elementary School. Um, God, we pray for our teachers who've been preparing, our staff members, all our educators. We pray for those who've already started school. And God, we just ask that this school year be, for for our, our children in particular, marked by a stretching of their faith and refining of who they are. God, may they obey you and love you above all things, even over the praises of man. May our teachers be light in the midst of darkness. And God, uh, would you just rock, rock uh, our schools, God, with the power of your name. God, I thank you, Lord, uh, for what we're about to hear, the reminder of who you are and your character. And so, God, I pray that for each of us, you give us the eyes of faith. Give us the ears to hear, Lord, what your spirit would want to teach us. Uh, God, give us teachable hearts, I pray. And be glorified, I ask in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, July 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. And the next afternoon, he stepped foot on the moon for the very first time anyone has ever done that. Previously, before that momentous occasion, our president at the time, John F. Kennedy, made it his ambition and made it clear that it was our desire as a nation to be the first ones up there. And you might remember those iconic pictures of Neil Armstrong standing on the moon next to an American flag. And this is why the American flag was placed there. It was not because that was now our territory that the moon belonged to us, but this is what John F. Kennedy says. He says, For the eyes of the world now looking into space, to the moon and to the planets beyond, we have vowed that we shall not see it governed by a hostile flag of conquest, but by a banner of freedom and peace. Our president then wanted to acknowledge that there is such thing, first of all, as a hostile flag of conquest. And there is such thing as a banner of freedom and peace. And what he wanted was that the flag of our nation to be on the moon would just demonstrate freedom and demonstrate peace to all who watched. Today we're going to look at the name of God, which says, The Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nissi. He is our flag of freedom and our flag of peace. And you and I know that there is a hostile flag of conquest, if you will. Now, all of us in our lives fight battles 
of hostility, battles against all kinds of things. We fight battles of spiritual forces. You've ever been confronted by a situation, and in your heart of hearts, you know that there is no other explanation other than the fact that this is an attack from Satan to diminish your faith. You ever been in that place? You ever been in a place where the, search, the situations are aligning in such a way where you feel like th- this is not a normal occurrence, that this is a real spiritual battle? There are flags of conquest. There is hostility that surrounds you and I. And it's in those moments in life when we feel that we're up against the wall and we are battling, whether it's against spiritual forces or battling against our own sinful nature, wanting to control things, being jealous, having envy in our heart or pride well up within. When we're in the thick of the battle, you and I need to remember As much as there is a hostile flag over our lives in those moments, there's also such thing as a banner of freedom and peace. This is our God who stands with us and calls us to let him fight your battles. The Lord will fight your battles. And it's your and my responsibility to sometimes just get out of the way and hold on to God. Now, what does that look like? What does that mean in the day-to-day? Well, today we find this name of God appear in the book of Exodus chapter 17. When God reveals himself as the one who fights his battles for his people in one of the most compelling of ways. Would you meet me in the book of Exodus? That's the second book of the Bible, Genesis, then Exodus, chapter 17. And would you meet me in verse 8? If I could ask you, would you please rise to your feet as I read our passage this morning? Exodus chapter 17, I will read verses 8 through 16. This is what God's word tells us. Then Amalek came and fought with with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men... And go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Verse 11. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with sword. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Verse 15, And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nissi, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated, fam. 
The Lord is my banner. Now this is perhaps one of the lesser known names of God. But as I unpack the passage, I want us to begin to see something of what it comes out of. Why God gives them this name at this time. And we see as we open up in verse 8 that Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Let's do some backtracking, give some context here. We've seen before that God's people had been slaves in the nation of Egypt for some 500 years. And through Moses and God's 10 plagues, Pharaoh finally lets God's people go. And as they exit Egypt, they cross the Red Sea that God parts with Moses' staff. And as Egypt begins to chase God's people, the Red Sea closes over them and God gives victory over Egypt. But now God's people find themselves on the other side of the Red Sea. And they've got wilderness in front of them. And God has promised to take them into a land. And that land land is known as the promised land. The land of what will become Israel. But before they go there, they've got a journey. All million plus of them on foot to this place. And so as they're on their way to the promised land, verse 8 is what takes place. Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim as they're on their way. Now, it's important to know something about Amalek and about what they're doing here. See, Amalek was the name of one of the sons of Esau, who was actually Israel's brother. And so Amalek was a a relative, a distant relative of the Israelites. Now, many generations have passed, and the Amalekites had become a great nation as well. But they were interestingly related to the people of Israel. They come and fight against Israel as they're journeying toward the promised land. Israel is minding their own business. Israel is just walking toward this place. But as you might imagine, they're tired at this point. They are weak. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 25, Moses writes, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary. And he cut off your tail those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So picture this. The million people of Israel, God's people, are journeying out of Egypt, but as you might expect, naturally, many of them were fatigued. They were faint. They were weary. They were tired. And the young children undoubtedly lagged behind. Those who were ill lagged behind. And what we're told then is that the Amalekites... We're opportunistic here. They, they saw God's people in their weakness and saw them as an easy catch to plunder them. You ever seen those animal documentaries where the lionesses are able to separate that water buffalo? And you're cheering on the other water buffalo. You're like, man, come help out this dude right here. He's by himself. And the more that water, buff, water buffalo gets isolated, you know he's going down. The lionesses are opportunistic with the weak one in the pack. Or once we were watching a documentary where a riverbed began to dry up and fish had not been able to get down the river before it started drying out. And the fish are there just flapping in this dried up riverbed, whereas bears and other animals are just coming like, are you kidding me? This is the easiest fishing I've ever done. And they're just packing, picking them up and eating them. And so what's happening 
as God's people are leaving Egypt, the Amalekites are looking at them with this kind of, uh, this kind of uh, eyes, this kind of wicked heart saying, they're weak, they are defenseless. They may be great in number, but they're weak in military experience. If you recall, God's people didn't lift a sword as they left Egypt. God did everything for them. They weren't strong. In fact, they were weak. And so here we see this context now of this great and experienced and established Amalekite nation and army attacking this weakened people of Israel as they left Egypt. It's those kind of situations where God's people are like, do we leave Egypt for this? At least while we were slaves, we had protection, and now we're here vulnerable in the wilderness. What we see, though, is Moses then has a kind of courageous faith. He tells Joshua, all right, Joshua, this is what you got to do. As a commander of our army, pick men of war and be ready to fight against the Amalekites tomorrow. What I'm going to do, he says, is stand on top of a hill in verse 9 with the staff of God in my hand. Now this staff, this, this wooden staff that Moses was carrying became pretty popular, if you know what I mean. It's this staff that Moses took to Pharaoh that turned into a snake and ate up Pharaoh's snakes. It's this staff that Moses dipped into the river to turn it into blood. It's this staff that God used to demonstrate his power by sending these ten various plagues. It's this staff that Moses put in the Red Sea when it separated. It's this staff that Moses struck the rock for it to give water as they were thirsting in the wilderness. And so now Moses is like, I'm going on the hill with this staff in my hand, the staff of God. And just as was the case with the burning bush, it's not there telling you to say, what kind of staff is this? I wonder what kind of wood. Was that oak? Was that maple? I mean, that's amazing. No, it's the staff of God. And the staff began to symbolize the power of God. You don't hear fear and trembling in Moses here. He's very matter-of-fact. In fact, we're not given a battle plan. All we're told is in Rephidim, but we're not given much of a geographical idea. Well, we're not told about how big the armies were because those are insignificant details as Moses stands on the hill. The one detail that matters most is what's in his hand and who it belongs to. The staff of God. And so Israel gets ready for battle. When I see this story and I think about what the Amalekites are doing, it's not hard to think about the enemies of God that continue on to our day. How Satan seeks to, through various circumstances, fight against God and what he would want to accomplish. To this day, Satan wants to disrupt God's plan, to thwart God's promises, to eliminate God's people, just as he's trying to do here. God's plan is to bring them out of Egypt safely. God's promise is to bring them into the land. God's people are the ones through whom he's going to accomplish his plan. And what the enemies of God would want to do at that time was to thwart, eliminate and disrupt these things. Satan has these tools in his tool belt even to our day when you and I are faced with various kinds of temptations. And we are called then to remind, be remembered, as we're called here, the Lord will fight your battles. Spiritual battles exist also at the hands of a broken world. 
You know, the truth of the matter is sometimes we're facing adversity, and it's not because Satan's doing this. It's just because we're living in a broken world. It's because you are a sinful person. And so when we try to manipulate and control situations, that, that's us. That's our rebellion. And we're fighting that battle against, against our own self. We fight battles against sin and persecution and fear and anxiety. And we're tempted to despair and to panic. We're tempted to live for the praises of man. We're fighting battles every single day, just as the Israelites did as they faced the Amalekites. And I want to ask you, what kind of battle are you facing today? What, what are the kinds of things that are confronting you? Is it a spiritual battle that you know undeniably is coming from the enemy, attacking your faith? Or is it a battle that results from your flesh, your sin, or just the realities of a broken world? Are you battling illness? Are you battling unbelief? See, we're all fighting wars today. We're all fighting in varieties of ways. I don't know what you're going through, but you and I need to search our hearts, say, God, what, what, what are the battles I'm facing? And then what am I doing with that battle? I also notice here that the Amalekites are doing something intensely unjust. And I find comfort in knowing that cruelty and injustice and evil are, not, are never out of sight and out of mind with God. When you're in my heart, gets riled up when we see injustice in our world. Remember even stories like this, where the weak were preyed upon, and, and God says, not on my watch is it going to remain like this forever. See, God has a plan here to demonstrate his power in a way that reminds us when we're in our battles that he wants to reveal himself as well. So we see here that Moses goes on the hilltop, and every time he lifted up his hands, Israel had victory with the staff of God in his hand. And naturally, as you would expect, his arms were getting tired. A few weeks ago, a bunch of the men uh, were met, met up at G's house, and Eddie gave a devotional from this passage. And what, what Eddie was saying is, he, he gave, gave the illustration, he had to stand up and a bunch of guys lift up our hands. And, you know, after, after like a few minutes, your, your hands are starting to shake. And I'm sure that, you know, he's enjoying watching that happen. But then he had two other guys come up and lift up our hands. And, of course, it gets so much easier. And what we see is Moses, as he's here on this hilltop, fighting this, in the spiritual realm, seeing God accomplish something in the physical realm, he's reminded that he needs others alongside of him to do this. He's reminded that he can't do this by himself. Yes, God will fight his battle. We're about to see that in the greatest of ways. But part of the ways that God helps us fight in these battles is through biblical community, surrounding us with people who love and fear God. Aaron and Hur came alongside of Moses, and they supported him so that God could have victory over his enemies. This was part of God's plan. And what you and I must then ask, as we fight our battles and keep our faith on the Lord, who are we surrounding ourselves with? Do you have people in your life who can hold you up? People in your life who will point your eyes toward Christ. This is one of the reasons why I'm super excited, not just about the men's retreat, but also about the manhood and womanhood study to follow the week after. Because naturally, we're called to ask ourselves, who are the Aaron's and hers in our lives? And who are we and Aaron and her too? 
when we're fighting these battles and when others are fighting our battles, how are we coming alongside of one another? And so this man's retreat is an opportunity, brothers, for us to say, you are not not alone in your fight. And as we get together, ladies in the ladies' homes and men with the men, we're looking at each other in the eye and saying, not on our watch. We want to hold each other up. If you're looking for a spouse, you've got to find and search and pray and look for one who's going to hold you up. If she appears to have it going on, but she don't love Jesus, let her go on past you. All right? (laughs) If he's charming and fun, but doesn't lift your arms towards Christ, let him be charming and fun somewhere else. The truth is, in the marital relationship, men, wives, husbands, you've got to be that kind of person because there are battles we are facing. And we need to surround ourselves with community, surround ourselves with people who know how to get our eyes toward Christ so we don't get distracted, find ourselves trying to battle by ourselves, manipulating situations for our own good, just trying to do things by our own strength. It's a losing battle. They would have lost had Moses been by himself. They surely would have lost if Moses had not sought God out. So it's not merely about the people we surround ourselves with, but ultimately about the God who fights for us. We see that God gives victory to his people. They overwhelm Amalek. The Amalekites are experienced, God's people are not, and yet God's people have victory. How is this possible? Well, because who fights on their behalf? If we see in verse 14, after the battle is over, the Lord said to Moses, write this in a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the the memory of Amalek from under heaven. As we study the story of the Old Testament, God says, write this in a book because, like, I don't want you to forget this, that I will fight against my enemies, that you don't fight on your own in the battles when you trust in me. Write it in a book. Don't forget about it. And then he says, and then recite it in the ears of Joshua. Well, why is that? Because Joshua's taking the helm after Moses. And then the leaders after Joshua, and time and again, and God's like, this battle, this this enemy, the Amalekites, I will wipe them out eventually. I will fight your battles, and there will come an end one day. And God tells Moses to make sure this is clear. And Moses, out of gratitude and thankfulness, builds an altar to worship God there, and he names it. He calls out to God. He gives God, uh, he speaks his name. He says, that the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. Now, I love this because this is what a banner is. When armies would go out to war, they would carry their, their, a pole, and on that pole would be some sort of insignia, oftentimes metal or bronze, and that pole's insignia would give directions to a particular uh, formation of the army. Sometimes those, those sim- signals were to remind you who's on your side. Sometimes those, those signified a rallying point in the midst of a battle. They would signify the authority, the one you're supposed to follow into war. You've seen images of the Roman soldiers carrying those insignias. 
In fact, the archaeological finds have shown that the Assyrian army had those same kinds of insignias and displayed on the top of it were their gods. Because the Assyrians believed that their gods led them into war. Even throughout history, military campaigns would be held and they would carry flags with their sign, their banner, waving on it. And here Moses, at the end of the battle, looks up and says, the Lord is my banner. He fights on our side. He is our rallying point when you don't know where to go in the battle. When you're confused and you feel lost, it's his banner that gives direction to you in your battle. In fact, Psalm 60, verses 4 through 5, says, You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, that your beloved ones may be delivered, give salvation by your right hand, and answer us. What the psalmist is saying is that Jehovah Nisi is our rallying point when you're in the middle of your battles. What Jehovah Nisi reminds us, what God reminds us, is that we can't do this on our own, nor should we. And so when you're confused and when you're fighting, don't manipulate. Don't fight back. Don't let anxiety rule. Don't let fear consume your mind. Don't let anger inform your hands. Don't let jealousy produce in your lips. Don't let your eyes strategize toward evil, but turn toward the Lord. I love how Paul says it in Romans 12, verses 17 and following. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to all. I'm sorry, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jehovah Nisi is a reminder, God is a reminder that he is our banner, the one who fights our battles for us. Family, it's important for us to remember that the enemies of God, Satan himself, has intel on your weaknesses. So even if you wanted to fight the battle, you can't. This is not to cause us to fear our enemy, but causing us to depend on our Savior. And so what we need to do is take a page out of the playbook of others, people of faith, who let God fight their battles. I think of Joshua, when God told him to march around Jericho for seven days. That's his battle plan. And God brought down the walls. Take a page out of the playbook of Gideon, who was ready to make war against the Midianites and the Amalekites. And he musters a great army of 32,000 people. And God says, eh, you got too many soldiers. Let those who are afraid go home. That's not the kind of direction you give the soldiers ready to give their lives on a battlefield. 22,000 people went home. Gideon's army stripped to 10,000. And God says, eh, 
a little too many still. Send home those who drink water one way out of this river and keep those who drink water the other way. Gideon's army ends up with 300 people fighting the multitudes of the Midianites and Amalekites. Why? Because Gideon needed to know and everyone after that the Lord fought that battle. Take a page out of the playbook of King David before he was king. When the nine-foot killing machine Goliath, and you must understand he was just that, an experienced man of war who had come back from many battles unscathed, a man who had gobbled up people twice the size of David, experienced soldiers. But David understood one thing, that he doesn't fight his own battles. And as Goliath looked him in the eye and says, you come to me with sticks? Am I a dog? David says, I come to you in the name of the Lord. And he says, I, and all earth will know that there is a God in Israel. Let's take a page out of the playbook of Daniel as he is in that lion's den, walking out of it. God fought his battle, shutting the mouth of the lion. We could take a page out of the playbook of Scripture time and time again, seeing what it looks like to let God fight your battles. And there's a common thread here, family. Here's one of them. These each had courageous faith in God. They didn't need to manipulate the situation because God had it under control. A common thread was that they had radical obedience. God said, send those soldiers home. Gideon sent those soldiers home. God told David, don't let them mock me. David didn't let them mock him. God told Joshua to march. Joshua marched. Radical obedience. And a third common denominator here is that they risked looking a fool to let God demonstrate his rule. They, they risked looking silly so that God can be elevated. And as Moses demonstrated here, and what you and I need to do, spiritually speaking, in the midst of the battle, keep your hands extended toward God. Don't, don't get them all busy doing, but keep them in the posture of surrender. God, fight my battles. But you know, when we let God fight our battles, things don't always turn out the way we want them to. You notice that? And so, to trust Jehovah Nissi, the Lord, our banner, we've got to be confident that the outcome of the battle may not result in what I want, but it will work toward what I need. The outcome of the battles you face may not result in what you want, but would work toward what you need. Because Jehovah Nisi, our great God, the Lord, our banner, sees the finish line. He knows the big picture. He sees how your faith needs to be tested sometimes. He sees the character that needs to be formed in your life. And so he's got it all under control. I love it how yet again we find Moses standing up on a hill. And you know, when we see Scripture, we see God always working on hilltops, doesn't he? God, God always has a way of showing up on the mountain or on the hill. And I'm not talking about Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac on Mount Moriah, although that was pretty impressive. 
I'm not talking about Moses is standing on Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, and that is important. I'm not talking about Elijah with the prophets of Baal and defeating them on Mount Carmel, although that's pretty compelling. I'm not talking about Joshua defeating the sons of Anak, the, the giants, in the hill countries of Judah. But we know God works on the top of hilltops. When we sing, I cast my eyes and mine to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior on that cursed tree. You see, what God has done time and time again is not says that I am the Lord, your banner, but he's shown how he fights for us. You see, in the book of Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah gives this prophecy that the Messiah, the deliverer who will one day come, will himself be a banner, a signpost for others to see. Isaiah says in Isaiah 11.10, In that day the root of Jesse, which is another name for the Messiah, he shall stand as a signal that comes from the same root word as Nisi, as a signal, a sign for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. He will raise a signal, that word again, for the nations, and will assemble the banished of Israel. The Messiah will gather that dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. You see, the hope that was found throughout the Old Testament scriptures is not simply that God was Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, our banner at that time in Exodus 17, but that God will continue to fight his people's battles and that one day his deliverer will come and be a signpost for others to come. He will be the one put on display for others to see. Small wonder why Jesus says in John 12, after hearing a voice from the Father, he says, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, the enemies of God, be cast out. And he says this, this is what Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You see, you've got to lift the banner up. For it to be followed and seen. And in the same way, Jesus would be lifted up on that hill, on his cross, to take our sin. He would also be lifted up from death to conquer death. And then he would be lifted into the heavens, seated at the right hand of the Father. And I'm so grateful that the law of gravity applies to Jesus. Because what comes up, goes up, will come back down. And when he returns, the Lord will come and ultimately fight that final battle. And he will put all God's enemies to rest and, allow, and bring us into his eternal rest where we will no longer fight ever again. He is Jehovah Nisi. And so what I tell you today, if you're here today exploring out, discovering, researching Christianity, what the God of the Bible is about, you must understand that he's a God who fights for us. And the greatest enemy is death. And our sin, our rebellion against God 
brings death. We ought to stand in judgment, uh, to be judged by God, and his wrath poured on us. But Jesus took your sin and my sin so that you don't have to face the punishment of yours when you put your faith in him. That's the beauty of what he does. So our prayer is that you would put your faith today. You say, Jesus, I believe that you were lifted up on that cross for me. And you stand as my banner, the one who fights on my behalf. Forgive me. And as you fight against the spiritual forces of this world, and you fight against your sinful impulses, lift up the banner. Surround yourself with biblical community. Men and women who will love you, keep you accountable, and point you to Jesus. My hope and prayer is that like Moses, we would send up an altar as an offering on an altar, our praise. And we say, God, thank you. You are my banner. You fight the battles for me. God, have your way. That's our prayer, family. This is Jehovah Nissi. Lord, we thank you, God, for Jesus Christ, who took on the greatest foes, Lord, to give us eternal life. And God, as we go about our days trying to live out our faith, we'll be confronted by all kinds of just adversity, Lord. Sometimes self-inflicted, sometimes just being part of a broken world, sometimes spiritually oriented, God. We just extend our hands, the hands of our hearts, saying, God, help us. We trust in you, Lord. We want to get out of the way. We want you to do your work. And God, just like the saints of the past, I pray that we would be radical in our obedience, that we'd be utterly confident in your will, God, and that we would risk looking the fool so that you get all the glory, God. Lord, we bring these requests before you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand up, family. As we sing this closing song, there may be times in your life you've seen God come through and it's been clear as day, man, that he's fought your battles. And then maybe there's days like even right now where you feel weak in your faith. I want to invite you to ask God to renew your mind. Say, Lord, help my faith ascend again to you, believing and trusting you. Uh, prayer team, would you come forward and make yourself here available as we sing our final song? We'd love for you to come forward and pray with them. Let, let these brothers and sisters hold up your arms in your battle today. Let them stand next to you, pointing your eyes toward Jehovah Nisi. Or maybe there's another one that you need to stand up for. Let, let, let our prayer team know. Hold you accountable to be that person in someone else's life. Let's sing together, family, and lift up our voices in praise to God.